You're listening to the Mini Market Podcast presented by Tellum Sports. Welcome back to the Mini Market Podcast presented by Tellum Sports. I am Dalton here with Isaiah, Lucas, and Connor. Connor, it's been a while since we've talked any wild on the pod. How are you feeling about the local winners, the Minnesota Wild? Honestly, I'm feeling pretty good. I think it's a bit telling at times. Like, I feel like it's kind of a classic fan base thing of like the Wild are just chugging along. They're playing well. There's not really like crazy ups and downs in their schedule. And so they just kind of get lost in the background where they're like, everyone kind of thinks right now we're on pace to obviously be secured into the playoffs. And, um, and so there's not like a ton of crazy things going on with the Wild, which is kind of funny because we complain all the time about like the bad teams we have. And then we have like a team like the Wild. And maybe it's just because hockey isn't always the biggest market nationally. But we have a team like the Wild who are like really solid. And we just kind of are like, ah, yeah, they're good. They're doing their thing. We'll be okay with them. But yeah, they just swept Vegas, which is like a pretty huge series for them. Um, one of the top teams in, in our West division. So, yeah, I'm pretty excited about how they're playing. Kaprizov, again, can't reiterate enough. He just looks lights out. Um, I think I saw today that he tied the franchise rookie record for goals or, like, consecutive games with a goal. It's only three, but still we're tying franchise records. So that's kind of fun. It was like him, Pascal Dupuis, shout out Ike, Word. and um, and Marion Gabrick. So some good company there. Is it just me or do these Vegas games feel like we might have a budding rivalry in the NHL? Like there is really good energy when these two teams meet this season. It's been, they've been like really fun games. I think the wild really get up to play when they know they're playing Vegas. And uh, I mean, we've had some interesting finishes, some really good games. Obviously these last two, you know, going to a shootout, that's a lot of fun always. And then a two, one comeback. They've been some pretty fun games. I don't know if it can be a rivalry because for a rivalry, it's got to be competitive and the wild dominate the, the Knights. People I mean, forget I, that. Ooh. I was I was looking at this the other day. The The wild have played the Knights 14 times uh, since the Knights have only been around a couple seasons. The wild have 10 wins, two losses, two OT losses, 10, two and two in 14 games. Domination. And the Knights have been good too. That's the thing. And the, they've been a better team than the wild most of the time, but for some reason, I don't know what it is. The Wild just get up when it's Vegas. Yeah, I, I'm curious if the entire league has a little bit of that rivalry thing with Vegas. Is that part of being an expansion team where it's like you took one of our guys and a lot of people kind of complained with the Vegas because they went to the Stanley Cup right away. So they were like, maybe it was a little too easy to take players and like there wasn't enough protecting going on. So I wonder if every team feels that way. But I definitely think for whatever reason, there's a serious rivalry rivalry with the wild but other than the fact that yeah that they're our little brother it seems right now so i know i definitely hope that colorado gets the one seed and we get the two or the three vegas gets the other one because i see us matching up best with vegas in the playoffs um we've only played the blues once i don't think we're going to get the number one seed like colorado is an absolute machine i think they're like eight oh and two in their last ten so we can kind of kiss that goodbye, let them have the one seed, and let's rock and roll here. Yeah, Colorado's finally playing like the team everybody thought they were to start the season. And they really, I mean, really got it going in this the 6-0 and the 5-1 victories against the Wild. I think that was kind of like... Jumpstart them. Yeah, and it was 
it was a reminder that the the wild are good but the avalanche are really good and and we beat them pretty handily earlier in the season i think it was 6-2 and it was like kaprizov's coming out party almost in a sense cuz it was kind of on national tv and it was it was a massive game for the wild and it was like a a sign that they're a really good team but the avalanche are they're too deep it feels like when they're when they're playing at their best I think the Wild are going to have a shot no matter who they're playing, though, because their goaltending is so good. Both goalies are incredible. I was just I was looking up stats before uh, before the pod, and if you look at goalies that have played at least eight games, as far as save percentages go, the Wild have the fourth and thirteenth best goalies in the league. Talbot's fourth, Kakinen's thirteenth. That's really impressive when you've got a one-two punch like that, and they're pretty evenly split. Talbot made a couple sick saves this weekend. Two of them were back to back. Like he made that sweet kind of like sweeping glove side save, and then the puck kicked out, and then he dove back across the crease and made another save. Stick. Yeah, it was just a highlight reel. It's incredible. Yeah, I agree. I think I think that that's an excellent point to bring up, Dalt. The Wild goaltending has been really solid. If they can continue to get that, I mean, it's kind of like getting a hot pitcher in the playoffs, where it's like, okay, we're gonna win this game. But then you get to pitch that pitcher every single game where it's like, you know, they have such a huge influence on the game. If you can get a hot goaltender in the playoffs, I mean, it's going to be tough to take that team down because for whatever reason, it's like the when you're missing shots in basketball and the hoop just seems to shrink and you just can't get the lid off the hoop. It seems like the same way where if you're a scorer and you just are getting robbed left and right by the goalie, it's just that net gets a little tighter and the goalie pads gets like a little bit bigger and there's some serious challenge there. Yeah, his impact is phenomenal. Like I think especially last night's game, I think the Wild got outskated and if you looked at the quality of chances, it seemed like Vegas had considerably better quality chances and more of them. Like they had multiple 2-on-1s, they had like a 2-on-0. They had a lot of like breakaway opportunities, a lot of those backdoor opportunities and like Talbot just seemed to be in the exact right place. I mean, even besides the sprawling, like wild saves where, you know, those, do they practice that? I'm sure they do a little bit, but a good amount of it is just luck to be able to get your stick on a puck, like just randomly. But the ones where it'd be, he just would come out and have the exact right angle and there would be literally nothing to shoot at on a, like a two on one breakaway. And it's, and it it lets the, the defense play a little bit like more fast and free. I feel like when, you know, you got a guy behind you who can like stonewall, like, the Wild were taking some chances a little bit more. Yeah, I think that can be huge, too, for players like Dumba, who really are offensive um, defensemen, and maybe Spurgeon, too, where they feel like they can get in the rush because they know they kind of have the brick wall behind them. Um, yeah, so a great point. One thing to note, too, is the Wild have positioned themselves pretty nicely. Um, they're eight points ahead of the fifth-place team in the division. Or, sorry, ten points. So... I mean, that's huge. 20 games left in the season, and there's a 10-point cushion between missing the playoffs. That's pretty big. Um, one thing, though, they do, I think, have six or seven games left against the Blues, who are, who are kind of neck and neck with the Coyotes on the, uh, on the playoff picture there. So I think that's going to be a big series to, to watch going forward is how we play against the Blues because they're always kind of a big physical team that wants to slow the pace down. And we rarely can say this, but the Wild are kind of an up-and-down team. They got some decent skill players. So for maybe the first time since, like, the early 2000s, they're one of those players that, like, or one of those teams that 
wants to kind of pick up the pace of the game. So we'll see how the, they, they kind of compare and contrast there when they go against the Blues. But overall, the season's just buzzing along. Things are looking up. It's all smiles right now. And we'll see if they add any pieces. The deadline here is coming up in just over a week. So that'll be a little telling as well to see if Bill Guerin adds anything and and how that all factors in with COVID and sitting out. And uh, there's just a lot to unpack if we do get to that point. Well, we all know Kaprizov is like, is that how you say it? Kaprizov? Kaprizov? Cappy Daddy. Like Caprison. Cappy Boy. It's Pretty Boy and Cappy Boy. Um, (laughs) We know he is like absolutely nasty, right? Like he's been the shining star of the season. He is a breakout player in the NHL overall, not just on the wild. Um, And he seems to be doing it with no matter who he plays with. And, and that's kind of my question is like, so lately, Ak, Erickson Ak and um, Kaprizov have been on a line together and it seems like it's working really well. But we were saying that like, we were saying that three weeks ago about Zuccarello and Rask. And so my question is like, does it matter who the Wild put on a line with Kaprizov? Is he just going to make everyone really, I mean, Ak has been good, but is, he just, is Kaprizov just going to make everyone around him really good is he just that type of player or do you really want to build like a i mean does it give you the potential to build like a you know crosby dupuis malkin type line where it's just like every single guy can score and they just have like amazing amazing chemistry like that'll be interesting to see what the wild do like do they just say like okay kaprasov is so good he can it doesn't matter who we put out there or do they try to take it to the like absolute next level and create like a stellar first line around him. I think it's always dicey to compare like Kaprizov being a rookie to like Crosby and Malkin and, and Pascal Dupuis. But, but I will say that I think with negotiations coming up for Kaprizov to try to extend him and get him here for, you know, five to eight years. I don't, I've heard some talks that he'll probably not take like the super long deal because if he does a five-year, then he'll be about 28 when he's up. And so he's still in his prime. So then he could get a 10-year at that point. So that's a little bit dangerous. Hopefully the Wild will resign him. But I think one of the big chips that I've heard is that Kaprizov needs to know what Bill Guerin's plan is to get a number one center because we don't have a number one center. Um, we talked about previously in a podcast, we, we lead the NHL in number three centers probably is kind of how that goes um, with four of them starting. And and for Kaprizov, he if he gets to play with a top-end, high-level center, whether that is we bring one in in free agency, trade for one, however we do it, I think Bill Guerin's got to tell, tell him or explain to him, this is our plan. We want to get you in with a number one center, and they will have that like dominant, high-end, one of the best lines in the NHL situation. But I think it is just a kind of testament to him is, he makes people around him better. And it shows by you can put anyone out there. And I should say Erickson X had a really good season. Yeah. He was scoring even when he wasn't playing with him. But I think everyone on the wild could probably agree they want to play with him because he just creates so much. The only person who maybe wouldn't would be Fiala because he's kind of the same. It's like the point guard situation where Fiala wants the puck on his stick, just like Kaprizov. They both want that so they can make plays. Only one puck. Fiala's more, I'm going to shoot and and Kaprizov's like, I'm going to shoot past, I don't know, who knows, check somebody, who knows. Um, 
But yeah, I would say everybody wants to play with Kaprizov because he's just dynamite out there. Like he takes the eyes off of you so you can sneak in the little cracks and then get backdoor tip ins. Like you've seen that so much. And then he'll just like the last time you would think he would shoot the puck, like he's opening up, he's looking to pass and then the puck just goes onto the net somehow. And then you're there to clean up the scraps with the garbage goal. And it's like, wow, if 90% of players would not make that play, but he's just so creative and he thinks way ahead of where he's at. Um, yeah, he's, he's electric. I think, I think it's just whoever plays with him. Congrats. Your stats are going to be boosted for the next week or two. Hope you're but, on a contract year and make that yeah. money, baby. Yeah. My question is if you guys wore hockey, man, like if you were Everson, would you guys j- jumble around lines as much as they do? Or do you like the continuity approach where you try to keep lines consistent? Cause I see him as, I mean, between periods, sometimes he changes lines and maybe that's just a hockey thing that happens. Cause it does happen more often than not. But I think there's kind of a value to being, you know, playing together for a week or two and just kind of getting into the vibe. Where would, where are you guys at with that discussion? I think I would lean towards keeping lines together just for like team camaraderie. And so they, these lines can gel and kind of just, you know, feel each other out a little bit. Um, but the way Kaprizov's been playing and like Ike was saying, he makes literally everybody better. If you need to get a guy going, who's maybe in a slump or he's, he's like not playing well. I mean, that's, it's so valuable to have a guy like Kaprizov to just stick on his line and then he'll just, He'll just give him his confidence back, if nothing else, because it's just you just it feels like you get a rush from playing with that guy. That's a great hockey mind right there. Love that. Time. Connor, question for you. How much do defenses scheme for particular combinations? Like do hockey schemes, is it like, okay, we know it's gonna be, you know, Erickson Eck and Kaprizov on a line, so we have a scheme built for that. And then if the wild come out in the second period and it's you know, they're on separate lines and now Kaprizov is playing with someone else. Does that throw off the defense? Because then that could be a potential benefit of sort of flipping lines. But I don't know if it's like how we run one scheme. It doesn't really matter who's out there. I think there's a, a slight component of that. So one of the big chess pieces in hockey is you'll see the home team gets the last change and that's where they kind of do that scheming. So like if you have a really good defensive line and the wild or the road team and they put out you know, Zuccarello, Kaprizov, and um, I don't know, Parise. And then on defense, they have like Dumba and Spurgeon. You might throw out your like defense line or your checking line because you kind of want to get after that line and make them uncomfortable while they're out there. But then, so the, that's kind of how they do the strategy is you can, you can adjust your line. So like I'll have my third line go against your first line. And then maybe I think your third line sucks. My first line's you know, significantly better. So I like that matchup a lot. So I'd say they scheme more line to line because in general, there isn't like a natural flow of how you want to play. Like there's not like in the NHL, there's not like, oh, we're a dump and chase team. All we do is dump and chase or like we're a possession team. Like they kind of lean one way or the other, but there isn't so much like when this line's out there, this is how they're going to play it. Because since hockey's just so fluid, it always is changing. But I would say that 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 may be a strategy change lines between periods. And now the other team has to reevaluate, OK, their their second line is way stronger than we thought. So now how do we want to play that? Do we need to move our guys around? So I think there's a slight component, but I don't think it's nearly like uh, like you build up during the week to strategize, like in maybe basketball or football, especially. Gotcha. 
learning a lot about hockey today. I think hockey is more like you look at your own team who plays well together, and that's what you base most of the decisions off of. Okay. I think I like the idea of shuffling around the the lines a little bit. It's kind of the way that uh, Rocco Baldelli shuffles up the Twins lineup. hey Buttery smooth transition into the first two games of the Twins season. Let's talk some Twins, boys. So Twins split the first two games against the Brewers. We're recording this Sunday before game three of that series. But there's a lot to talk about, a lot to unpack. Only two games in, but... I mean, we didn't even make it through half an inning before old Josh Donaldson, J.D., was removed from the game, had to be placed on the 10-day injured list with a tight hammy. Uh, luckily, it was not a calf injury. I think everyone, he hit a double in the top of the first inning of game one, uh, rounding first base. He sort of did some weird hopping. Uh, looked like maybe a calf injury, so I think all Twins fans were holding their breath for a little while, but it ended up being a hamstring injury. Lou, do you have any thoughts on, on old JD? I know you were pretty upset when when he had to leave the game injured. Yeah, I mean, it's just so tough to see. It's like such a Minnesota sports thing. It's like we have all this hope. This guy's coming back off an injury. Everything like the signs are pointing to he's going to be healthy. And then all of a sudden, bam, he just gets hit with the same old injury again. Luckily, it's not an injury um, to the same calf. So it's actually the hamstring, like you mentioned. So you know, maybe put this one on his rehab staff. He over rehabbed the calf, maybe under trained the hammies. Wasn't ready for opening day? Question mark. I don't. I don't know here. Who's coming at people's jobs right now? That was aggressive. But no, it's just it's a it's a bummer. It's a bummer. I mean, hopefully he just gets better and he'll he'll be back in the lineup. the 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 positive light I like to look at this. At least he hit a double while he was doing it. You know, he didn't just hobble out of the out of the box after striking out or grounding out to the, the shortstop or something like that. So Lou's just staring Michael Salazar, the uh, head athletic trainer of the twins, just staring him right in the face. Where do you get off? Where do you get off training to strengthen an injury than to cause another injury? Maybe top down, we fire everyone. We're one and one. We're not on pace to make the playoffs right now. Do we just blow it up? <laughs> Start at the athletic trainer, work our way down. I want Wally the beer man. He may have passed on. So I don't know. He's old I want him gone. Nobody survives this. Thunder and rain. I'll say this about Donaldson. I got a lot of empathy for what that man's going through. Hell, here it is. <laughs> if any, anybody knows me, I'll we'll probably tweet this picture out. Um, I went through something similar back in the day in my playing career, and uh, I pulled my hamstring on a double. So we're basically the same player. Um, it's a tough injury. I, it's weird to have everybody being so excited that it's a hamstring injury. That's how bad his calves are because hamstring injuries are notoriously tricky and they linger and they are not something that like yeah he's on the 10 day list but he that doesn't mean he's going to be ready to play in 10 days like these things can last two weeks it can last you know you can still be unsure of yourself and feel like it could go at any moment for the next three months like it's going to be an interesting season for him um, because he started it with a hamstring injury so it's very very funny to me that 
it's like a, a celebration that it's a hamstring injury. Because with any other guy, it's like, uh-oh, hamstring injury. I mean, remember Torrey Hunter? He, used to, he went through that a couple of years with the Twins where he had hamstring injuries that just seemed like they kept coming back and, and stayed around longer than they needed to or than you'd like them to. But his hair looked sick, so I don't know. I think he's going to have a good year, maybe still. Look good, play good. The other major story in game two, Twins flirted with a no-hitter. Jose Barrios was pulled after six innings of no-hit ball, 12 strikeouts. He was only at 84 pitches. Obviously, Baldelli was being cautious early on in the season, didn't want to stretch out the pitch count. But my question for you guys, so Barrios got pulled, and after the game, he said he didn't know he had a no-hitter going when he got pulled. It was only the next inning that he realized that the Twins were no-hitting the Brewers. So, Connor, you're the pitcher of the group. Do you believe that after six innings, he had no idea that he was throwing a no-hitter? I got to think there's no way because he didn't walk anybody. So, like, did he? He hit a, a batter. Person. He hit a batter. So, there, it's not like there was a ton of traffic is kind of what I was going to go to. It's like if, he had, if we had three errors and then he hit two guys and walked two guys, it's like, okay, I could see that a little bit because you're like, damn, I'm pitching out of the stretch like every other inning. But the fact that you hit one guy and so he was one over the minimum, it's kind of like, how don't you know? And maybe, maybe that's just a testament to like the mental preparation of the Twins pitchers. Is it like, how could you not know? You're just so locked into each at bat. But maybe he was just like, oh, I'm feeling it today. 12 Ks through six innings. I mean, good Lord. But I, I, would, I would think that's a load of baloney. I think he probably knew. I know I would. Because every time I got through the first inning without a hit allowed, I was like, uh-oh, today could be the day. It never happened. Watch out. Something in the air. Yeah. Here's a fun research project for anybody who likes to really dig their, their sink their teeth into something. So there was dual perfect games going in this game. And both perfect games were blown by hit by pitches in the same inning, in the fifth inning. So... If anybody wants a little research project, any of our beep listeners, boop, boop, beep, boop, boop. what was the last time that there was dual perfect games blown on this, like the same way in the same inning? I got to think, and this is going Maybe off my never? top of the head, but I'm going to go with Lou and I'm going to go with never. It's a very specific scenario, but <laughs> you know, <laughs> I didn't say it had to happen in the fifth inning. It could happen at any time in Milwaukee in game two. When's the last time that happened? Mm-hmm. I don't know, guys. I guess I'm the only one who thought that was interesting. It was kind of fun to me. I was like, wow, like interleague play. They've been going at it and they blow it the same way. I did a little research, not related to the, the perfect game situation, Damn. but pod. I was hoping you'd um, have the answer. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't do enough research, I guess. So Brios just diced, and then it got me thinking. I was like, I feel like every year he comes out of the gates, and like his first couple starts, he's just dominant. So I looked at since 2017, his first start of the year, and yeah, I was right. He was ab- he's been absolutely filthy. So 2017, seven and two thirds innings, two hits, one run, one walk, four Ks. 2018, complete game shutout, three hitter, six Ks. 2019, seven and two thirds innings, two hits, no runs, ten Ks. Last year got shelled a little bit, four innings, seven hits five runs and then yesterday a no hitter so that being said the last five seasons his first games he has a 157 era a 0.52 whip and nine and a half k's per nine innings absolutely dominant do not bet against jose brios game one next season i'm putting big money on the twins and brios first start here's the question 
do we need to rest Burrios like a month between starts? Like when he comes out fresh, that's the, that might be the key. So do we get a six starter and we have Burrios throw the first day each month, the first game of each month? He comes off a month rest where he's just, you know, building velocity, getting his stuff in, comes out and shoves. That might be the answer. I like it. And then a private charter to Fort Myers. So in between every start, he goes back to spring Mm -hmm. training and just soaks in the sun and, you know, the good vibes. Routine is so crucial. And I think that's where we have this figured out. It's not the every fifth day you throw. It's the once a month, get you down to spring training the next day, kind of get in, get in the vibe. Honestly, maybe we send him to Miami for a little while, have some party time. Let loose, baby. So speaking of hot starts, Byron Buxton has two home runs in two games. Don't look now, but he's on pace for 162 home runs this season. Analytics Analytics podcast. Number, number, numbers. But in all reality, it's just really good to see him, you know, hitting the ball, driving the ball. I I saw a couple. I know one of them, the one yesterday was uh, on a pitch away. So he, he took it to right center. That's just a beautiful piece of hitting. Really like to see that. That excites me a lot. Yeah, he's been mashing, and he he mashed last year. But like you said, that home run to right center, that was his first home run to the opposite field since 2017. To see him hitting for power and using the whole field, it's going to be a dangerous, dangerous year for Byron Buxton. And he was hitting third in the lineup yesterday. First yeah, time in a that. while. Remember like his second year up, opening day, he was hitting third, and everyone's like, ooh, this guy's going to be sick. And then a month later, he's in the minors. <laughs> about that. Hopefully history doesn't repeat itself on that front. Interesting that you said 2017 was the last time that he went to right field for a home run. If you guys remember, that was when like Torrey Hunter was coaching with the twins and taking like uh, a lot of his time and a lot of his focus. I was working with Buxton on his approach and specifically using the whole field and kind of like unlocking the whole field and kind of being able to stay on sliders. And it really paid off from that year. Like that was probably, I mean, it was his only full season in the MLB, but it was I mean, it could be, you could say it was his best year, save maybe 2020, but, but it, it was, it was cool to see that he's keeping that approach going right now. Like he's tapping back into it without Hunter having to like always be preaching it to him. So he's sort of internalized that learning. And I think that's really cool. Um, Buxton had a quote before the game yesterday, he said, I feel confident enough now where it doesn't really matter what you throw me, I'll sit on breaking pitches. I'm starting to realize how quick my hands are to react to fastballs. Once you get to that point, it's pretty scary. Um, and it's like, yes, like this is what everybody has been trying to get him to realize his entire like MLB career. Mm-hmm. And I don't, obviously, again, it's two games. It's not totally overreact. But if this is true and if this approach stays, like watch out, seriously, like he could be pretty dangerous. He's still going to strike out more than he should probably. Um, but like I said, to see him internalizing that, those learnings from Hunter and just like a general good baseball approach is like being able to use the whole field, um, which he really has not done at all, except for a little bit in 2017 in his career. So hopefully he sticks with that approach and hopefully he keeps seeing success from it. Cause that's one of the things that helps when you're, when you're trying something new, if it's working, it's easier to stay with it, not fall back into old habits. Uh, two other kind of like highlights that I that I saw were uh, Luis Arise is still Luis Arise, uh, putting together pretty good at bats. Uh, he's what three for nine on the season. So, I mean, 
I don't think you'll find any Twins fan that doesn't like that guy. He just like he just is the epitome of what you hope a young baseball player can be where he just kind of battles. He, you look at him and you're like, I don't know if he, if I walk by him on the street, I probably would not notice that he's like a professional baseball player. He just looks kind of like an average Joe, but, uh, but man, it's are his hands quick. And then Andrelton and Simmons, if I'm saying that right, was uh, he had a couple back to back. He had two hits in the first game and one hit in the second game. So kind of fun to see him contributing at the plate where, I think we knew he was going to be a good defender, but the question mark for him was more at the dish, and it looked like he was at least getting on base. I know one was like an infield single at least, so we'll see. Well, didn't uh, didn't Simmons have an error in game one? So maybe he's kind of flipped the script. On uh, He's sick of being just known as this great defensive guy. He wants to throw that out the window. He's a, he's a hitter. <laughs> so we were talking about uh, Buxton who was mentioning, you know, he has hands quick enough to, to hit MLB fastballs. And so it got me thinking. I have a question for you guys. Say that you're in the batter's box. You I see 100 this. MLB fastballs that are 100 miles an hour. They're all strikes, so you don't have to worry about getting hit by a fastball. But they're 100 miles an hour, 100 in a row that are all strikes. How many do you think you put in play? Is this, clarifying question, is this right now? Right now. Like right now, we go outside we and I've got I've got a hundred mile an hour guy out there just oh, chucking geez. strikes. How many do you think you put in play? A hundred in a row. In Wood play. or an aluminum bat? <laughs> Question: Can I bunt? No bunting. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I'd even make bunts or outs. Yeah, I'm not going to go first. I'm gonna. I want to hear someone else's answer. Isaiah, first. let's have you take the lead. Yeah, absolutely. As the best hitter on this podcast, I'll say this. <laughs> if, if I get a few warm-ups in, a, in the batter's box, get my timing down, get my foot down, see you know if it's going to be the same release every time too, I'm saying there's probably going to be first four guaranteed I don't even get within the vicinity. I am swinging. Catch, catcher has closed his glove, is transferring. He's already <laughs> throwing it back to the pitcher, and then I'm starting my swing on the first five. After that, we, we start to like, we get a little bit sooner, a little bit sooner, a little bit sooner. I'm still not making contact after the first 10, 11. But after that, you know, I'm hitting 60% of those. So I put myself in somewhere around, play. you know, 55% of the fastballs are put into play from me. So 55, 55. out of 100. Hitting is 100% timing. So if you know the, it's going to be the exact same speed every single time and you know it's going to be a strike, it takes all of the guesswork out of the entire equation. And all you got to do is get your foot down, baby. Stand it out Question. There. True. How, many times, how many times do you have to stop to take a bathroom break in this 100 pitches? <laughs> yeah, is there a time limit? <laughs> a little context <laughs> to that zinger is that I, in this is our 14th episode of our podcast, and I have had to take a bathroom break in 13 out of the 14 episodes. So, um, you know, the adrenaline's pumping. I'm probably sweating pretty good with these hundos. I would say if I'm controlling the whole environment, I'd say, let's say it's 72 degrees. I think that's a great hitting temperature. A um, little bit of sweat. I'd say I don't have to, especially if I got seeds going, a little salt, soak it up, you know? Mm-hmm. Yep. Retain it. Yeah. So 55% go. of 55 of the hundred is what I'm doing in play. You didn't, didn't have to hit hard. Just got to put them in play. Put them in play. Get pucks to the net. Here's how I see this going for me. The first five, it's basically 
Richie from the bench warmers where I step into the back corner of the box and the umpire's got to ask me to move in and ah, I'm good. Um, so those are the first five. So kind of a wash there. The next three, I'd say, I'm, I'm guess I'd probably step with the wrong foot. So my back foot would lift instead of my front foot just because I'd be so nervous to see 100. So I'd just wipe out the first 10 pretty much. So out of the 90, I honestly, I do, I favor Isaiah's approach yep. where I do think there's a lot of just timing and hitting. Like if you can just get, get yourself loaded, get your front foot down, and then just hope to God that you hit a couple, I think I could at least get 20. 20 of the 90 after the whole adjustment. <laughs> but I think I could hit 20 in play as a college pitcher that hasn't really hit other than slow pitch softball since senior year of high school. So like eight years, 20 of them, just, just a baseball guy though. So an athlete. Yeah. I, uh, <laughs> I think, uh, I think you guys are on the right track too. I'm going to, I'm going to agree with, I think it's, it's a little easier than we, than I first thought, but also like Connor, just basically just give me 90. I'm going to see the first 10, but like, I'm not, I'm not even come close. So essentially I'm going how many out of 90, <laughs> but, um, I'm, I'm thinking I could do, get them in play. Remember Ike, very good point. I'm thinking about 35 to 40. I'd like to say that I could get in play just all timing. The big thing they're all strikes. If you mix in yeah, a couple balls, for sure. that really starts to dwindle that number, I think. If you get a little wild. All it takes is you to tell me that plate. he could hit you on one, mm-hmm. and I yeah. that number goes down to two. Yeah, I was going to say, it's almost zero if you're like, oh, I yeah. might get yep. hit in the face. Yeah, I'm not hitting any of these. <laughs> yeah, yeah. okay. <laughs> um, I will also say that I think I burn a gap once. Ooh, like I am square one up. And I think it's the right center gap for me for oh, obvious so reasons that, that ball. Yeah. I'm not pulling into the gap. I, but I will drive that ball into the right center gap one time out of 100 at least. Yeah, how many of these balls are like just a fight off and they just like they plink right down the line and right for you? If it's a wood bat, I bet I would go through approximately 12 bats and my yeah. thumbs would be dragging on the ground in pain. Yeah, I planned on oh, rolling over to short yeah. quite a bit. Quite a bit. <laughs> uh, also, I, I'm in with you, Connor. I think I do more than hit a gap. I hit a home run. You let the velo do the work. Oh, yeah. Let the pitcher supply the power. <laughs> yeah, baby. <laughs> power in, power out. <laughs> I mean, if we're playing in New York, Yankee Stadium, oh. I hit three, four, maybe five home runs. Oh, Bomba God. Oh, Dalt, I'm Dalt, curious to hear you your, your take. Dalt's yeah, I'm been making faces hitting? at us this whole time. I don't think he <laughs> agrees with what we've been saying. <laughs> <laughs> no, so hey, you gotta you gotta bet on yourself. Well, it's no, got slow hands. On. We should preface that with that. That's true. <laughs> yeah, wicked slow hands. But I had, yeah. but you know what? Great hand-eye coordination. No, the reason. So the reason I said all strikes and they're all fastballs is to make it easier. Because like you said, if you were just going up there against a guy facing, or facing a guy who can throw 100 miles an hour, and you're facing his whole arsenal, and he could throw and hit you in the face, like I don't think any of us would hit more than like two balls. But yeah. 55 Isaiah yes 55 out of <laughs> yes. 100 what what is the hardest thrower you've ever faced is it above like 92 I was gonna say 92 and was that like one or two at yeah bats? two for three dog <laughs> yeah we saw it power out baby <laughs> and an RBI but think, but think about the difference between like mid 80s and the guy throwing 92 and now that do that again and that's where you're at 
And you think you're going to hit more than half of those after the first 10 you just watched sail by you? Uh, yes. I don't know. I, a, a 92 with the possibility of an 84 changeup and an 86, 87 slider is harder than 100 every time. Question, though. Like, point. When was the last time you swung a bat? How, what's your swing like right now? Okay, I got a Joe Maurer quick swing in the basement. <laughs> <laughs> Putting up 500 swings a day. No, it's been like two years. I don't know. <laughs> See, that's another well, part of this that I think the swing will take some time to get back to us. I think one thing I didn't consider on the front half or on the first part, I don't think anyone did, is fatigue. Like swinging 100 times in a row on a 100-mile-an-hour pitch, I, by the end of it, it, I think I would be pretty fatigued. Like my hands are slowing down. My whole body's just not coming through the same. I'm going to have to start if they're in the windup when they take that first step back. That's when I start my swing pretty much by the end of it. But it is crazy because if you can put 55 in play, I, you think 20 maybe hits, 10 hits, 5 hits? What do you think would be like a base hit? And I hate four. to go down a rabbit hole on this, but I'm just kind of curious. Four. Four, so four hits? So we have and one of them yeah. roll over. <laughs> or off the end of the bat. Yeah, just right? like nubbers that barely land fair. Is the, but if there's movement, if we're talking 100 and it has movement, Out. I'm done. That's going to be a tough things. one. Yeah. We're basically like if we could go to the batting cages, turn the velo up to 100, and it's like pretty consistent, you know. You're probably not going to get hit in the batting cage, maybe, but... That's kind of this this simulation. I think a harder for me personally. I am a dead red fastball hitter. That was the only pitch I could ever hit. I think a harder for me would be like Dan Heron twelve six. He throws a hundred twelve six in a row to me. I don't think I hit any. I swing over top of that every single time. Or like Kershaw brings the hammer out and he throws a hundred straight twelve six curveballs to me. No, I'm not getting any. Can't do it. Those have some ugly swings coming up for all of mm -hmm. us. Mm -hmm. yeah. Especially Pork the first screwed. time you swing. Yeah. So Dalt, we got a little off topic there. Let's right let's reel it back to what's how many are you putting in play? <laughs> if I got to 15, I would be like my mind would be blown. I was gonna say like 10 tops, tops, and that's a couple off the end. Because think about the difference between a high fastball and a low fastball that are both strikes. I don't think I could adjust to that. I'd just, be, I'd just close my eyes and swing in the same spot every time and hope the pitch hits my bat. Like, I'm not going to adjust to location of a 100-mile-an-hour fastball. Well, you're not going to get many hits with your eyes closed. Any Little League coach will tell you that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And on the ball, Jimmy, um, <laughs> let's... I, but I will say, I think you, you're, if your timing's right, if you just swing in the same spot, you'll hit more than you think. Because, like, I think, I think they're going to be just dotting it in the middle. That's what my general impression is. I don't think they're like, oh, let me pound the corners in this drill. It's just strikes. It's not all in the same location. Know, if it was I in the same location, yeah, I'd, I'd say 80 times. You just swing at the same spot, same time. Seems high, but Is this, uh, whose zone is this? Is this Fox Tracks? Is this the ESPN zone? Or is this Cowboy Joe West? Like, whose zone are we working with? I need to know. <laughs> the MLB strike zone's small, too. People forget that. Tiny, Robot tiny. Arms. The the letters is high, dude. They're throwing belt to top of knee. You yeah, could do that, yeah. Dalton. Yeah, I think you're not giving yourself quite enough credit and the umpires in the MLB enough disdain. Come on, King. You got this. Believe in yourself. 
If there's any professional baseball players, <laughs> yeah. they seem to throw in the hundred to hundred plus range. God, I wish we could. I wish this would be great content if we could follow through on this and see how many we oh, actually put in play. But I would bet so much money that you guys would go under your projections. Do you think you would go uh, under your? Is there yes. is there a, a restriction on bat weight that we have five. to use? Drop five. Drop I'm thinking drop ten, drop maybe. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, if we ever start a YouTube channel, this could be a good first video. We get a super high powered pitching machine but i'll say this even if we do that i'm already going to start working it back because it's hard to get your timing on a pitching machine because you have nothing to work off <laughs> That's of so different it's so different, different you know because the hitter's timing is based on the pitcher and if the pitcher doesn't give you anything it's just a ball that shoots out randomly and it is random so i'll drop it down if we're doing a pitching machine yeah it's like 50 probably 50 let's just when the world opens back up let's all go to um Grand Slam. We'll go to the highest pit. I, they probably got maybe 60 there. Let's just start there, see how we do. I do still have some tokens from when I was in like fourth grade in my basement. <laughs> so first few rounds are on me, boys. Yeah, and then <laughs> after we can uh, we can play a little laser tag. Nothing love better. that. Mini market field trip. Have a nice little weekend. God, I love talking twins. <laughs> this is the best. I was just thinking we got <laughs> to, to rein it back in a little bit. One person I will point out is I I'm trying to remember. I think it was you Dalton or Isaiah that in our, in our uh, kind of prospectus that we did pre gaming or preseason um, kind of projections for the twins talked about Taylor Rogers and boy, did he look good? I think it was Isaiah. Am I right on that? Is you kind of talked about him as a breakout player? Well, it's been both of us. We're singing the same tune on Taylor Rogers. Dull, I'll let you kind of take it away. Yeah, Rogers has looked really good. I mean, he's pitched in both games, so he has he's pitched two innings, no hits, no walks, four strikeouts. So he's looked dominant. Yeah, Isaiah said he was poised for a breakout candidate. I said he might be the Twins Cy Young this year. Hey oh. He's not going to be used in the traditional ninth inning role like he has been the last couple seasons because of the signing of Alex Colome. So we've seen that already in the first two games. Uh, he's pitched the seventh inning. He has been brought in to face lefties when the Brewers had an inning coming up with two lefties. Baldelli calls in Rodgers, and Rodgers gets to dominate lefties like he's done his whole career. Uh, late in the games, you know, when you're pitching the ninth inning, the other team can sort of scheme more and bring in pinch hitters, bring in right-handers who hit lefties well. I think being able to be flexible with Rodgers and use him as more of a, a fireman to come in and put out fires or face lefties, it's going to really benefit him and it's going to help the Twins. And early on, I think we've seen that already. It's really encouraging because last year he was a little down. You know, he gave up a lot of runs. His ERA was inflated, but his underlying numbers looked good. He was still throwing good pitches. He just had some poor luck in a shortened season. It's it's going to be fun to see how Baldelli uses the bullpen this year because he's got some good arms at the at the latter end of the bullpen. Are we worried at all about Colomay's uh, outing in the first game, blowing a three run lead in the ninth after being looking so promising in this closer late inning late inning role? He's just he lays an egg game one. I'm a little worried. Are you really? Not sm I'm not smashing the panic button, but like, yikes. 
One more quick thing about the Twins bullpen. Um, Hansel Robles, he was assigning the Twins signed him early in free agency. Uh, he was the Angels' former closer, had a really bad 2020 with like a 10.5 ERA. Um, he's looked good. He only threw one inning, but uh, it was noteworthy. His fastball velocity was up. So he said last year he was really affected by no fans in the stadium. He said he's a big adrenaline guy. Coming in in the ninth inning, everyone's buzzing. As a closer, he really feeds off that. So 2019, his average fastball velocity was 97.1 miles an hour. Last year, his average fastball velocity dipped to 95 and a half. So a little over a mile and a half dipped there, and he was ineffective. In his one inning he pitched this year, it's a small sample size, but his fastball average was back up to 97 miles an hour. Some fans in the stadium in Milwaukee, he was feeding off that maybe. So good to see from him. Well, do you do you believe in him now? I remember when they put him, when they trotted him out there, we got a message in the group chat. What are they doing putting Robles in in this spot? You are not happy. I, I don't love that they're tossing him into late game situations already because they have guys like Duffy. They have Alcala, guys who I think are a little less risky. Um, Robles' career, he's had some control issues. He was like, he was basically an all-star in 2019, but his command in 2019 was significantly better than any other season of his career. He's pitched in like seven, eight seasons. It made it feel a little bit like an outlier. Like everything just sort of clicked and came together in 2019 and he's able to throw strikes. Um, and you don't want to have a guy throwing the eighth or ninth inning with the lead who has the potential to walk two or three guys in the inning. So that's what makes me a little nervous about him. But I mean, it's it's too early. It's one game to really draw huge conclusions, but it was at least encouraging to see that his fastball velocity was back up because that is like a tangible number that you can sort of point to. Do you have any concerns about when a guy says something like he feeds off of the energy of the crowd and he's been a closer and now he's not going to be in a closer role probably at all this season? Like, do you worry about that going forward where he's not going to have as big of high leverage situations and as much energy coming from the crowds in like the sixth inning, seventh inning, eighth, like, you know what I mean? Are you worried about that at all? That's a good point. I haven't really thought about that. I guess, yeah, that could be a little bit concerning, but I think the difference between like fifth inning stadium with fans and ninth inning is a lot less than no fans at all compared to being a closer. So I think, yeah, there might be a little bit of a difference there, but it won't be as severe as the 2020 season where guys were playing in completely empty stadiums. That's a good point. I kind of think that 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 might just be a bit of a cop-out. Like, I know the numbers may support it in a small sample size, but I don't know. I, I can understand, like, the energy the crowd provides at times, but I think that that is just an easy potential easy scapegoat of saying oh yeah we didn't have fans last year so that's why i sucked so yeah that's why i got paid what i did this year to kind of like rationalize it for fans i don't know if i totally buy into all that i think you're a professional at that point in your career regardless of the situation you need to be like producing at a high level i don't know i just see that as a bit of a cop-out so i'm not i'm not drinking that kool-aid so much connor's not buying what you're selling a robles yeah pass does anyone else have any any takeaways from games one and two of the season? I had uh, I had one more thing uh, in terms of the offense. It was a little alarming, the number of strikeouts that we had. 17 in game one, 13 in game two. 
two of those being in game two came from Barrios. So, I mean, I'm not super concerned about that. Um, but then I thought, okay, you know, let's, let's try not to get too over overreacted here. It's game two. Pretty soon, those strikeouts are going to start turning into bombas. So, so you're concerned, but not too concerned. Yeah, I'm trying to play. I'm trying to play the waiting game. I'm being optimistic, but 17 in game one, that's a lot. That is a lot of strikeouts. Something I found funny before game one is the uh, sky is falling mentality of Minnesota sports fans when people saw that Nelson Cruz wasn't in the lineup. Uh, we did get a text <laughs> maybe from one person even in, in this uh, this podcast saying, Cruz isn't in the lineup. What's going on? And you look on Twitter and people are like, oh, Cruz is already hurt. Oh my God, why did they re-sign this old guy? He's already hurt. Donaldson's hurt. This is going to be the, the season's over, basically. Hey, uh, this is an, a game played in a National League park, so there's no DH. So he's fine. He's just on the bench. But it was just like the sky is falling. The world is ending. The Minnesota Twins franchise is over. I'll take this one. So that was me. Um, I would say I didn't necessarily have this, that, that. That wouldn't have been the tone. I was like, my text was, I believe, hey, is, is Nelson Cruz injured or why is he not starting? I wouldn't say the sky is falling, but I honestly will, I will evade the blame and put this on Bali Sports. If I can just watch your game, if I can watch the game, then I can see that it is. Also, an afternoon game is hard to watch uh, when you're working. So you know what I mean? Like, uh, it's hard to watch the live stream, but if you just let me watch it on TV, Bali Sports, that would be great. And then I can just tell it's at Miller Park and there's no need for this sort of falling out with Twitter fans. Because I will say that that's why it, it was alarming, because it's not on TV for the majority of streamers out there. So Fox Sports, Bali, whatever you want to call yourself, you're the real culprit here. You can run, but you can't hide. Some of us found a way to watch the game, so I don't know. We'll leave it at that, Portland. I guess. Um, <laughs> Some of us are loyal Minnesotans here. Oh! All right, that does it for this week. Baseball is back. Thanks for tuning in to the Mini Market Pod presented by Tellum Sports. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Tellum Sports and check out our content at TellumSports.com. See you next week. I'll never get those 20 minutes back in my life.